You guys can turn to Judges chapter 6. Judges chapter 6 as we look at the life of Gideon. Back in high school, Two of my best friends and I decided to start to kind of pick up the hobby of rock climbing at a a local climbing gym. Uh, And I'll be honest with you, I did not start rock climbing out of pure motives. My desire, perfectly honest, was to look cool and rugged in the eyes of our female friends. And in high school, I needed all the help with that I could get. But as I began to, to do rock climbing in the gym, I found that I loved it. I actually really liked it. It was good exercise. It was also really challenging. I loved the inherent challenge of, can I get up that wall I've never climbed before? So I loved rock climbing in the gym. But then we came to college and we decided to take our hobby on the road to to climb in the real outdoors out in Austin and Enchanted Rock and El Paso. We climbed all these beautiful cliffs. And I found that um, I didn't like climbing in the real world very much. (laughs) You see, climbing in the gym felt safe. The gym was built up to exacting engineering codes and your rope went up over a steel girder. And if you fell, the floor was covered with these squishy mats. It was wonderful. But in the real world, it was not so safe. It was not so risk-free. In the real world, you had to supply your own rope. So, you know, did you buy the right one and are you using it right? And uh, you had to... uh, anchor yourself into the wall. You had to place your own anchors in cracks and crevices. And did you do it right? Is that little piece of limestone going to hold me if I fall? And the worst part, in the real world, I had to put my life in the hands of my 18-year-old buddy. And I was an 18-year-old boy, so I know how dumb and distracted we could be. I remember to this day the feeling of panic I would have in my stomach when I was climbing up a wall and would look and see a girl in a sports bra jogging down the trail. Because I knew if I slip right now, I will die because none of you are looking at me. (laughs) It was about six months later that I gave up. I, I, I quit climbing. What I found was that I quit climbing because I lacked sufficient faith. That's what rock climbing is ultimately all about. Every time you go to climb a wall, you face a decision. If I fall, do I trust my gear with my life? Well, I had gym level faith. In the relatively risk-free environment of the gym, yes, I will trust my gear. I didn't have real world, 100 foot up a cliff kind of faith. No, in that kind of environment, I didn't trust my gear. I never grew in faith, and so I washed up. I quit climbing. That's what makes rock climbing such a great metaphor for the Christian life. Both are all about faith. If you want to be a success as a rock climber, you have to grow to trust your gear. If you want to be a success as a follower of Jesus Christ, you must grow to trust your God. You will only accomplish great things as a follower of Christ if you grow to have great faith in God. If you want God to do big things in your life, if you want him to work in you to free you from, from some addictive sin that just seems to own you, it's just, it's just owning over you, it's just kicking you down. If you want God to to help you to love someone who seems unlovable, maybe someone who's really hurt you bad in the past. If you want God to to help you to respond to pain and suffering with joy, with with peace, with generosity. If you want to introduce a friend or a family member who's lost, if you want to introduce them to Jesus, to the gospel. If you want to make a lasting impact in this world for Jesus Christ, none of the things on the board are things that you can do. In your own strength. These are all too big for you. Each and every one of these requires faith. Only God can do these things. Great accomplishments require great faith. 
If you want to do great things in life, then you must have great faith in God. The more you trust him, the more you rely upon God to do big things in you, the greater things he will do in your life. That's what we learned from Gideon. Gideon's story is all about faith. Will he trust God to do great things through him? So let me reintroduce you to Gideon. Um, some of you were here last week as we began to look at his story. For those of you who weren't here, let me just give you the basics about Gideon. We, we meet Gideon in a book that I would say is probably the most depressing book in the Bible, the book of Judges. In the book of Judges, there is no forward progress. The nation of Israel does not take any steps forward in the book of Judges. They are caught up in, in a tragic cycle throughout the book, a cycle that, that looks like this. The nation falls into idolatry. They begin to worship false idols, and because of that, God, after warning them, turns them over to judgment. Well, in the midst of their pain, the people cry out in remorse to God. He sends a deliverer, and no sooner have they been delivered than they begin once again to worship idols. Really depressing cycle throughout the book. And when we meet Gideon, they are at the low point of one of these cycles. Low point of one of these cycles. Look with me. Judges chapter 6, verse 1. It says, Then the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian seven years. The Israelites were worshiping a god called Baal, a false idol. And as a result, God brings in the Midianites. Midianites were a huge army in the ancient world, very large army, well-equipped. They rode camels, which in the ancient world, a camel was kind of equivalent to a tank today. If you had a lot of camels, you won every time. The Midianites were a powerful force, and so every time they came into the nation of Israel, the Israelites would literally hide in caves. That's where we met Gideon last week. He was hiding in a cave in fear of the Midianites. And so Israel has been oppressed by the Midianites for seven years. They cry out to God in the midst of their pain, and God sends a deliverer, a guy named Gideon. Now, what do we know about Gideon? Well, to use our vernacular, to use our way of speaking, we would say that Gideon was a believer. That's the category we would put him in. He was saved. He was a child of God because he believed in the one true God, Yahweh. So the perennial question, will you see Gideon in heaven? Yes, you will, assuming you also are a believer. To be more specific, since we live after the coming of Jesus, you will see Gideon in heaven if you believe the good news about Jesus. The good news that Jesus died for your sins in your place and then rose from the dead so that you could have forgiveness and eternal life as an absolutely free gift. It's yours if you simply believe. If you believe that good news that God's son died for you and rose from the dead, then you will see Gideon in heaven. You have eternal life because the Christian life begins with faith. But now that we have been saved through faith, we are not finished with faith. The rest of our lives as children of God is all about faith, growing to trust God more and more. That is the dominant issue of your life. As a child of God, will you grow to trust God more and more completely? That's the story of your life. That's what your life is about. That's what Gideon's life was about. That's what his story is about. Will this believer choose to trust God more and more deeply in the trials and strains of life? Let's find out. Let's look at Gideon's life, at his story, at how he did. We're going to see this morning two tests that Gideon faced. Two moments where he had to choose whether to trust God or not. Two tests of faith. The first test of faith is all about the Midianites. 
Gideon, will you choose to trust God to help you defeat an undefeatable enemy? Let's pick up the story in chapter 7. This first test of faith begins with an impossible task. Look at chapter 7, starting in verse 1. Then Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him, rose early and camped beside the spring of Harad. And the camp of Midian was on the north side of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, the people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into their hands, for Israel would become boastful, saying, my own power has delivered me. Now therefore come, proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, whoever is afraid and trembling, let him return and depart from Mount Gilead. So 22,000 people returned, but 10,000 remained. Then the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Bring them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. Therefore it shall be that he of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, he shall go with you, but everyone of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, you shall separate everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, as well as everyone who kneels to drink. Now the number of those who lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people kneeled to drink water. The Lord said to Gideon, I will deliver you with the 300 men who lapped and I will give the Midianites into your hands. So let all the other people go, each man to his home. So the 300 men took the people's provisions and their trumpets into their hands and Gideon sent all the other men of Israel, each to his tent, but retained the 300 men and the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. Now the same night it came about that the Lord said to him, arise, go down against the camp for I have given it into your hands. Okay, let's, let's think for a moment about this task that God has given Gideon. He has told Gideon, Gideon, you are to go out and conquer this invading army. So Gideon does exactly what we would expect him to do. He raises an army. And if you add the numbers together, he raises a, a pretty sizable army of Israelites, 33,000 of them. It's a pretty big army, pretty nice number of soldiers until you compare it to the Midianites. Find out in chapter 8, there are 135,000 Midianites in the valley below. All of them armed with swords and camels. That's a crazy lot of camels. So a huge army. When you do the math, what that's telling you is that Gideon is outnumbered four to one. That's not good odds. It's really hard to win a war when you are outnumbered four to one. Really, really hard but not hard enough for God. It's not hard enough in God's opinion. And so God begins to whittle down Gideon's soldiers. He goes from 33,000 to 10,000. Dismisses 22,000 who were afraid. Says, that's, that's enough, Gideon. Send them away. But 10,000, that's, that's still too many. God says, you, you can still win in your own strength with 10,000 valiant men. So I, I can't let you do that. That's not a test of faith if you can do it on your own. And so he whittles them down further. Arbitrarily, he whittles 10,000 down to 300. 300 now squaring up against 135,000. You do the math, that is 450 to 1. That's 10 times worse than the defenders of the Alamo faced. And you know what happened to all of them, right? Yeah, 450 to 1. You go into battle, outnumbered 450 to 1, you die. We call that a suicide mission. There's no hope, humanly speaking, for victory when you are outnumbered 450 to 1. But God is clear. Verse 9, go. Gideon, take these men I have given you and go into battle. Gideon faces a huge test of faith. When the odds are stacked against him, when the odds look impossible, will he trust God to give him victory? Huge test of faith. The good news for Gideon is that in the midst of this test of faith, he was not alone. 
God was with him. Look with me starting in verse 10. But if you are afraid, this is God speaking still to Gideon. But if you are afraid to go down, go with Purah, your servant, down to the camp. And you will hear what they say, and afterwards your hands will be strengthened so that you may go down against the camp. So he went with Purah, his servant, down to the outpost of the army that was in the camp. Now the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the sons of the east were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts, and their camels were without number, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. When Gideon came, behold, a man was relating a dream to his friend. And he said, behold, I had a dream. A loaf of barley bread was tumbling into the camp of Midian. And it came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. His friend replied, this is nothing less than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given Midian and all the camp into his hand. God follows this impossible task with gracious encouragement. He says, Gideon, hey, if you're scared, I understand that. Why don't you go down to the Midianite camp? Gideon sneaks down. All, all stealth-like, and he happens to overhear this conversation between two Midianites, two bad guys. One of them is relating a dream, crazy dream, weird dream, and the other relates the interpretation. Somehow he knows about this guy named Gideon. He says his dream means we lose, he wins. God gives Gideon this moment of, of supernatural encouragement. That's the great news. When, when you are in a crisis, when you face a test of your faith, you are not alone. God is with you. He is standing beside you, encouraging you and strengthening you. What we need to understand, let let me help you think about this. This is how I think about God with us in trials. Um, It's not like when you took the SATs. You took the SATs and you send them off to people far away, people who don't know you, people who really have nothing vested in you, people who don't have a relationship with you. They simply wait for your test and then assign you a grade. That's not God. That's not how God operates when you face a test of your faith. No, God is like the best teacher you ever had in school. That teacher who desperately wanted you to succeed. That teacher who loved you, who cared about you, who stood next to you, who trained you, who did everything he or she could to make sure that you passed the test. That's God. You have to understand, God never wants you to fail. It is never God's desire for you to fail a test. He always wants you to succeed. And so he is always standing next to you, strengthening you and encouraging you and enlarging your faith. And so God is next to Gideon, strengthening and encouraging him. And the result is Gideon chooses to trust. He passes the first test. He chooses to trust God. Look with me, chapter seven, verse 15. When Gideon heard the account of the dream and its interpretation, he bowed in worship He returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the camp of Midian into your hands. He divided the 300 men into three companies and he put trumpets and empty pitchers into the hands of all of them. With torches inside the pitchers, he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. And behold, when I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I and all who are with me blow the trumpet, then you also blow the trumpets all around the camp and say, For the Lord and for Gideon. Gideon chooses to believe. He chooses to trust God, that God is going to give him victory. He chooses to trust God despite the very weird battle plan that God gives to Gideon. It's a very, very strange battle plan if you think about it. Gideon is to take his 300 men, and instead of building fortifications and a defense, they're supposed to spread out as far as they can, spread out. And what are they supposed to have in their hands? A trumpet and a torch. What do they not have in their hands? A weapon. What are you going to do if the guy starts coming after you? Hit him with a trumpet? You got nothing. (laughs) If the battle goes wrong, they will all die. It's an incredibly risky plan that God gives Gideon, but Gideon says, I don't care. 
God has told me what to do. I'm going to believe. I'm going to do it. Gideon takes this huge step of faith, and the results are astounding. Absolutely incredible victory that God brings through Gideon. Look at verse 22. When they, that is Gideon's men, blew 300 trumpets, the Lord set the sword of one Midianite against another, even throughout the entire army. And the army fled as far as Beth Shittah towards Zerah, as far as the edge of Abel Mullah by Tabath. The men of Israel were summoned from Naphtali and Asher and all Manasseh, and they pursued Midian. Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against Midian and take the waters before them, as far as Beth Barah and the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were summoned, and they took the waters as far far as Beth Barah and the Jordan. They captured the two leaders of Midian, Oreb and Zeb, and they killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and they killed Zeb at the winepress of Zeb while they pursued Midian, and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon from across the Jordan. Okay, so what happens? Gideon believes and God gives victory. Actually, before Gideon even showed up, God was already bringing about this victory. Gideon was already at, or God was already at work sowing the seeds of fear among the Gideonites. That's probably what that dream was about. I guess God gave that dream to lots of them because they are all afraid. When Gideon shows up and blows the trumpets, that's just the match that lights the, the kindling of fear that God had built. We find out in chapter 8 that within minutes of blowing those trumpets, 120,000 Midianites are dead at their own hands. They kill each other. Gideon doesn't kill any of them. 120,000 kill each other. Now Gideon thinks, well, gosh, okay, we're, we're looking good now. And so the rest start to flee. Gideon takes his men and chases after them as God commands. And he just hunts them down, wipes out the Midianites battle after battle. They end up killing their kings, two here, two in chapter 8. The kings of Midian are dead. Midian will never threaten Israel again. This is, it's game over for them. Gideon wins a complete and unmitigated victory because he trusted God. The odds didn't matter. Gideon won because he was willing to walk by faith. And that's where we get our first lesson, the lesson for us from Gideon's first test of faith. Faith can overcome impossible odds. 450 to one. God laughs at those odds. Make it a million to one. He still laughs because it's God. He's omnipotent. He doesn't care about your odds. God can do all things. There is nothing too hard for God. In the movie, The Hunger Games, what are, what are people always saying to one another in The Hunger Games, in greeting or as someone departs? May the odds be ever in your favor. Well, guess what? If you are walking in faith, they are. If you're walking with the Lord in faith and dependence, if you're walking with him in trust, then the odds are always in your favor because you are with God and that's all that matters. You plus God equals infinite. It equals everything you need to accomplish all God has called you to do. Faith makes the impossible possible. If you are willing to walk in faith, God will accomplish impossible things in you. There is no limit to the victory he can win in your life if you will walk with him in faith. I have seen men and women who were caught up in horrible addiction, some sin that was just devastating their life, and they wake up one day and decide, I am going to believe. I'm going to believe that God can win victory over this sin in my life, and they won. I'm watching them today. They're still tempted by that sin. Temptation will probably not pass until they die, but they're living sober lives, lives of love, lives of of progress, lives where they're serving one another. They're reaching out now to others who are caught up in addiction. They are winning victory because they believe that no sin is too great for God. I've seen men and women who were hurt devastatingly by someone. 
incredible evil done to them. And in the eyes of the world, that man, that woman has the right to be bitter, to be angry, to seek vengeance. And yet I have seen them choose to trust God for the power to forgive. I've seen them choose to trust God to make things right and to choose in faith to love and to forgive. It's incredible. I watch them now. They're models of gratefulness, of love, of generosity. It's a miracle. It takes about that much power to seek vengeance. It takes way more power to forgive. That's the miracle. I've seen men and women who are suffering from incredible physical pain or financial ruin. They just, they are in poverty. And in the eyes of the world, they should be bitter about that. They should be angry about that. They should be selfish, hold on to whatever they can get. And yet in faith, they choose to believe that even in my pain, God is still good. God is good even when life is not. And out of that belief, they choose to be models of joy and love and peace and patience and generosity. That is a walking contradiction in the eyes of this world. A person who is in pain, who is poor, choosing to be a model of generosity, that's a bigger victory than what Gideon won against the Midianites. There is no limit to the victory God can accomplish in your life if you will trust him, if you will believe that he can do anything, if you will believe that God is enough, he will win great victories in your life. In this story, in this test, Gideon did well. He was a hero at this moment in his life because he chose to trust God. If only Gideon's story would have ended in chapter seven. Then Gideon would have died a hero. But it doesn't end here. He faces a second test of his faith in chapter eight. And as high as his victory is in chapter seven, his failure is far worse in chapter eight. Second test of faith that Gideon faces. First test was a difficult test. Will you trust me in the midst of facing an undefeatable enemy? Second, it's a test that comes in good times. Gideon, will you resist the temptation to get yours? Look at chapter eight, starting in verse 22. This test begins with a very tempting offer. Chapter eight, verse 22. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, both you and your son, also your son's son, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. They are offering Gideon a crown. Gideon, be our king. Enjoy the spoils of ruling over us. Uh, That's a very tempting offer. Just one problem, it was not theirs to give. It's not a legitimate offer. You see, Israel was a theocracy. That means God's in control. God calls the shots. God is the one who selects who gets to be king. And God had not selected Gideon to be king. God had called Gideon to be deliverer, but not king. God reserves that right in ancient Israel. He told his people that back in Deuteronomy 17. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, let us set a king over us, like all the nations around us, be sure to appoint over you the king the Lord your God chooses. But he hasn't chosen Gideon. So it's not their right to offer Gideon a crown. The people know this verse. They know that God's not okay with what they're doing, but they don't care. It tells us in the text that they want to be like every other nation. They want to be like all the nations around them that have kings. If we have a king on the throne, it will make us feel like big boys. It will make us feel secure and safe and, and give us an air of respectability. They want that respectability so bad, they're willing to rebel against God and offer Gideon. Gideon, you can be our king. You can enjoy all the spoils of being king. It's a very tempting offer for Gideon. It's his second test of faith. Will Gideon choose to trust God in the midst of this temptation? Will he choose to believe that God has given him enough? 
that the power and influence and wealth that God has given him is enough for him. Will Gideon in faith choose to be content with what God has given him? Or will he choose to believe that he deserves more? He really does deserve to be king. He deserves to enjoy all the wealth, all the privilege that comes with that. Will he choose to trust God or will he choose to reach out his hand and take what's coming to him? Sadly, for many of you, you know where this test goes. Gideon makes the wrong choice. He chooses not to trust God. Look with me, starting in verse 23. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. He begins by feigning obedience. With his words, he says, no, no, I won't be your king. God is your king. No, no, no. With his words, he honors God, but with his actions, he says something very different. You see, with his actions, Gideon acts like a king. Look with me, starting in the next verse, verse 24. Yet Gideon said to them, I would request of you that each of you give me an earring from his spoil, for they had gold earrings because they, the Amalekites, were Ishmaelites. They said, we will surely give them. So they spread out a garment and every one of them threw an earring there from his spoil. The weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple robes which were on the kings of Midian, and besides the neckbands that were on the camel's necks. Gideon made it into an afad and placed it in his city, Ophrah, and all Israel played the harlot with it there, so that it became a snare to Gideon and his household. So Midian was subdued before the sons of Israel, and they did not lift up their heads anymore. And the land was undisturbed for 40 years in the days of Gideon. Then Jerubbabel, the son of Joash, that is Gideon, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons who were his direct descendants, for he had many wives. If you want to understand what Gideon is doing, um, some of you follow college football, and you may recall last year, all the drama around Oregon's coach, Chip Kelly. Will he go to the NFL or not? Will he stay at Oregon? Well, what did he say with his words? I, I want to stay at Oregon. I don't want to go to the NFL. I want to stay here. But then how about his actions? Well, he says he wants to stay, but he goes and interviews with a bunch of NFL teams. But after those interviews, he tells ESPN, absolutely not. No, I'm staying in Oregon. This is where my heart is. I don't want to go to the NFL until the Eagles call. And he jumps for Philadelphia. With his words, he said, no, no, no. But with his actions, he said, yes, yes, yes. That's Gideon. That's what he does. With his words, he says, no, I don't want to be king. But with his actions, he says, yes, I do. Give me all that comes to me as king. A number of things that Gideon does as he is acting like a king in this passage. Number one, he collects a king's fortune. Verse 26, 1,700 shekels of gold. That's about 43 pounds of pure gold. That's a lot today. It was a fortune back then. Supply of gold in the ancient world was much smaller. Huge fortune, a king's ransom that Gideon collects. So he collects a king's fortune, and he, second, collects a king's wardrobe. Dude begins to dress like a king, wears those purple robes and those ornaments. He makes himself out to look like a king of the Midianites. So he dresses like a king. Third, he builds a harem fit for a king. Notice that at the end of the passage. He had many wives. Well, in the ancient world, the only people who had many wives were kings. That was the only group that could have many wives. It wasn't like there was a surplus of women in the ancient world. Rich guys maybe got two or three. It was only a king who had the power to build a large harem of wives. That's what Gideon does. It's actually really ironic. If you look back at Deuteronomy 17, which we read from earlier, God warns the nation about what a bad king would do. He says he must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. So Gideon is not just acting like a king. He is acting like a bad king. 
a corrupt king. He is multiplying money and kingly clothing and wives. But that's not the worst of it. The women and the money and the clothes, that's not the big thing. The big thing is he built a a fod. He solidified his power by building an idol. An afad, usually that word in Hebrew refers to the garments, the elaborate garments that the high priests wore. In Israel, it became a symbol of authority, of spiritual authority. So Gideon takes all this gold and shapes it, casts it into the image of priestly garments and puts it in his house and tells all of Israel, when you want to worship God, you must come to my house to my glorious ephod. What's he doing? He's solidifying his power. You want to talk to God, come to me. He's acting like a king. Now, sadly, later, they'll end up just worshiping the ephod rather than bother worshiping God. We'll just worship the gold statue. So he builds an idol like a king would. And last, towards the end of his life, look with me at verse 31. His concubine who was in Shechem also bore him a son and he named him Abimelech. Gideon names his son Abimelech. What does Abimelech mean? In Hebrew, literally, my dad is king. Man, he's removed all pretense now. (laughs) He's not winking anymore. No, this is it. I am your king. Regardless of what I said to you earlier, I want all that comes with privilege. I will be your king. I am your ruler. Gideon has jumped full into their sinful offer. He said, yes, I want it. I want what's coming to me. I want to provide for myself all the wealth, all the pleasure, all the power I can get. Very reasonable thing for people to do in the eyes of the world, but in the eyes of God, it was treachery. Gideon had failed his second test of faith. He chose not to trust God. He chose not to be content with what God had provided. He chose in his own power to reach out and grab all the wealth, pleasure, and power he could. Here's what's ironic. Just pause for a moment and recognize Gideon passed his first test. And what were the conditions when he passed that first test? They were desperate. Gideon was about to die. Life was bad with a capital B. And he passes the test. Now life is good. Life is pleasurable. Life is easy. And he fails. Isn't that human nature? We do better when life is hard than when it's easy. Because when life is hard and pain, we are forced to lean on God. But when life is easy, when life is pleasurable, we are wooed into the false idea that we don't need God. And so Gideon abandons God and grabs all he can get. He chooses not to trust God. He chooses to get what's coming to him. And the results are catastrophic. Gideon failed and left behind him a legacy of sin and suffering. Legacy of sin and suffering. Look at verses 33 and 34. Then it came about as soon as Gideon was dead that the sons of Israel again played the harlot with the Baals and made Baal Bareth their God. Thus the sons of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. They did not remember the Lord. Now that's not literal. They didn't forget about this guy named Yahweh, God. Uh, They simply chose to ignore him. They chose to ignore all the good that he had done in their lives. Instead of worshiping him, they worshiped this idol called Baal Bareth, Baal of the covenant. Ironically, it was God who had made a covenant with them, but they're going to worship this other idol. Now, why is that? If you read through your Old Testament, you find out the the Israelites had a love affair with Baal. They worshiped him all the time. Why did they worship Baal instead of the one true God? Well, quite simple. Because worshiping Baal is a whole lot more fun. In the ancient world, Baal was really popular. 
He was the popular God. All the other nations around Israel worshiped Baal. He was the God who controlled the sky and rain and all the things that would make your crops grow. And so if you wanted to be part of the party, you had to worship Baal. So he was the more popular God. He also liked sex a lot. Actually, it's, it's pretty gross. If you look at worship in the ancient world, the worship of Baal usually involved immorality. He wanted you to do all those things that Yahweh said no to. And so because of their desire for sinful pleasure and their desire to be popular, they abandoned the one true God and embraced the idol called Baal. And here's the tragedy of that. What were the Israelites doing at the beginning of this story? They were worshiping Baal. Within one generation, not even one full generation, they're back to where they began. They're back worshiping Baal. That's exactly what brought the Midianites in the first place. Their idolatrous worship of Baal is why God judged them. Now they're back in it. They have relapsed into horrible idolatry. Not long after this, they'll come back under a new enemy called the Philistines. So they're back where they started, back into idolatry. Gideon's choice not to be faithful, Gideon's choice to teach idolatry to the nation has made a nation of unfaithful people. So his choice not only leaves a legacy of sin for the nation, it also devastates his own family. Gideon's legacy brings self-destruction to his family. Look with me, chapter 9. Gideon had 71 sons because he had all those wives, 71 of them. You met one of them, a guy named Abimelech, whose name means my dad is king. Apparently that name went to his head. He thought, well, my dad is king, so maybe I should be king. So Abimelech, after his dad is dead, he gathers an army to go after his brothers. Look with me, chapter 9, verse 5. Then he, that is Abimelech, went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Gideon, was left, for he hid himself. So Abimelech goes to Gideon's house and kills all of his brothers except the youngest. The youngest somehow gets away. We don't hear much about him after that. So Abimelech just wreaks havoc on Gideon's household, and God is not pleased with that. So God brings vengeance upon Abimelech and the people who crowned him king, who made up his army. They end up not getting along and and fighting against one another. They rebel. Abimelech slaughters a whole bunch of them. And then look at the story, chapter 9, verse 52. Towards the end of chapter 9, verse 52. So Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and approached the entrance of the tower to burn it with fire. But a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head, crushing his skull. Now they're all dead. You read the story of Gideon's family. It reads like a Quentin Tarantino film. (laughs) But where no one lives through it, everyone dies. It is a complete and unmitigated disaster because Gideon chose sin. He chose not to trust God. He chose to be selfish. He chose day after day to sin and that created a legacy of pain and destruction for his family and for his nation. And what we learn from Gideon's failure, from this second test where he failed, what we learn is that we are building our legacies each and every day, either legacies of faith or legacies of sin. Each and every day we are building our legacies and they're not made with one grand choice. That's where we often go wrong. We think about the legacy I will leave those who come after me as if I I make that legacy on one grand day where I win this huge victory. No, that's not what shapes your legacy. Gideon had one really good day where he won the greatest victory we have in the book of Judges, an astronomical victory. Guess what? Doesn't matter. Because that one grand day of victory is annulled by countless days afterwards where Gideon chose faithlessness, where he chose selfishness, where he chose sin. Was Gideon a hero? Absolutely not. 
Now, Gideon is a tragic figure. Gideon's one great day is canceled by countless days of faithlessness. We are all building our legacies each and every day by the little choices that we make, either legacies of faith or legacies of sin. Each and every day you wake up and you face a choice. Today, will I choose to trust God? Today, will I choose to believe that God is enough? Will I trust God's goodness? Will I trust his love? Will I trust his power? Will I walk in faith with God today? Or will I choose to believe that I deserve more? That I need to reach out my hand and get what's coming to me? We face every day the choice to walk in faith. Let me give you a couple examples of this, a couple examples uh, that will help you make this concrete, see exactly what this looks like. Here's what this looks like if you're married. If you are married, every morning you wake up and you face a choice. Today, will I choose to believe that my spouse is God's gift to me? Today, will I in faith choose to be content with my spouse, with whatever he or she offers me? Will I be content with what God had provided? Or will I choose to believe that I deserve a little more? I deserve a little more than what my spouse provides. I deserve to be a little happier than I am. And so I am justified with a little flirting at the office or on Facebook, a little lust, a little pornography. That's my right because I deserve more. Marriage is all about faith. That's what a good marriage is built on, faith. Will I choose to believe that my spouse plus God is all I'll ever need? Will I choose to believe that? Your choice each and every day will shape the legacy you will leave in your marriage. Here's a second example. Money. Money is also all about faith. Each day, each time you get your paycheck, each time you look at your bank account, you face a choice. Will I choose today to believe that whatever salary, whatever wealth, whatever money, whatever possessions God has provided me is enough? Will I choose in faith to be content with what God has provided or do I choose to believe that I deserve a little more? That I deserve to have more money, more wealth, more status, more prestige than I have at the moment. And so I am justified in the little compromises that I make. A little dishonesty with a client. A little dishonesty on a reimbursement form. Too many hours spent at the office. A little stab in the back to a coworker who's competing with me. That's my right because I deserve to be happier. I deserve to have more. Day after day, making little compromising choices like that in the name of career advancement, that's how you leave a legacy of sin behind you. Let me make this really, really concrete as we try to walk out of here, as we try to think about this and own this. What we learn from Gideon is that our legacies are determined by the small choices we make each day. Not the big once-in-a-lifetime choices, although those are very important, but each and every choice we make each day, that's what shapes our legacy. We're either choosing to walk in faith, to trust God with our lives, or are we choosing not to? So as you look at your life, what kind of legacy are you building? Are you building a legacy of faith or legacy of sin. Here's what my legacy looks like. This is what my legacy is all about. It is not this church. It's not Grace Bible Church, although you are all very important to me, but you are all second. This is what's first. This is Luke and Gracie, my three-year-old twins. They are my legacy. What matters in my life, what will cause my life to be a success, is if I leave them a legacy of faith. As I prepared this message, we got these photos back. It was just this moment for me as I'm studying Gideon and then looking at these beautiful pictures of my children where I was just convicted to think about, you know what? I bet Gideon had some pretty great looking kids. 
I bet he did. And I wonder, as I think to myself, you know, I, I tell Luke and Gracie every day to their face many times that I love them, but do I really? I wonder how many times Gideon told his sons that he loved him. Maybe every day. Maybe every day he tells them that he loves them, but does it really matter what he says? Because his actions prove that he didn't. His actions proved he could care less about his kids. He chose selfishness. He chose sin. He chose to get what was coming to him. And as a result, he created the circumstance by which all of his sons died. He left a legacy of sin and suffering because he chose sin. What legacy are you leaving behind you? Each choice you make, each and every day, it is shaping the legacy you leave for your kids, for your family, for your church, for your community, for everyone who is looking up to you. What legacy are you leaving? A legacy of faith or a legacy of sin? As we close, I just want you to think, what have you learned personally from the example of Gideon? As we've looked at his life, what is God saying to you in particular? Let's let's go before the Lord and reflect on Gideon's life. If we want to leave a legacy of faith, got to understand that begins with faith in the gospel. If you want to leave a legacy of faith, you must first believe that Jesus really did die for your sins and rise from the dead so that you could be forgiven and be a child of God now and forever. Have you believed that good news? That is the starting point for the legacy of faith. Now, for those of us who have believed that good news, we need to take these moments as we reflect upon Gideon, and I think the most appropriate application would be to spend a little time in confession. Because if you're like me and you're thinking about this subject, you realize, man, I've fallen short. I know I should be leaving a legacy of faith for those coming up after me. And I've fallen short. We all do. That's okay. Confess that to the Lord. Now, maybe you look at your life and you realize I've fallen more than a little bit short. I haven't done anything to leave a legacy of faith. I've been leaving a legacy of selfishness and and sin in my wake. I've been hurting the people around me. And maybe God is convicting you about that. The good news that I have for you this morning is that as long as you are still breathing, there is hope for you. Until your body is dead and cold and in the grave, there is hope for you to leave a legacy of faith. God is omnipotent. He can do anything. He can rewrite your legacy starting today if you will walk with him in faith. Turn away from sin and walk with him in trust and he will begin to heal you. Take this time and pray to God, God, heal me, heal my family, grow me in faith, rewrite my legacy. Now, on the other hand, if you look at your life and you say, you know, I'm not perfect, but I've really, I've been taking a lot of steps of faith. I'm growing in my legacy of faith that I'm leaving behind. Then I would encourage you to pray and ask God, God, help me to excel still more. Stretch my faith, enlarge my trust so that I can leave a greater legacy of faith behind me. And if you're a college student and you're listening to all of this and thinking, man, I'm not going to need to apply that for 20 years. Let me just be real frank, real clear with you. You are wrong. You're wrong. You are building your legacy today. Each and every day, the choices that you make today will affect your future spouse, your future kids, your future job, your future church, your future community. Every day you are building your legacy. We have to understand there is no scrimmage in the game of life. Every day counts. Today counts for you. So let's go before the Lord and pray that he will grow our faith so that we can trust him, depend upon him, walk in faithfulness and obedience and build a legacy of faith for those coming up after us. Heavenly Father, we thank you 
that the Christian life is all about faith and not about works. Lord, if it was about our works, we would be lost. None of us measures up to your standards. None of us in our own strength can honor you. So thank you, God, that the Christian life is about faith. It's about depending upon you to do great things in and through us. But Father, all of us fall short. We have such a hard time trusting you with the day-to-day realities of life. So often we want to jump in and take care of things ourselves because we feel like we deserve more than what we have. I pray, Father, that you would convict us. I pray that you would transform us through your spirit and grow us in faith. I pray, Lord, that we would each believe that you can do incredible things through us that you can do impossible things through us, that no sin is too great, no, no pain is too great, no trial is too great for you. I pray, Father, that we would have great faith in you so that you can do great things in us. And I pray for all of us as we think about the legacies we're leaving behind us, Lord. The choices that we make each and every day, Father, all of us have fallen short. So often we choose to be selfish. So often we choose not to trust you and to instead act on our sinful instincts. And pray, Father, please forgive us. Please cleanse us of our sin. I pray for those in here who've, who have left behind them a legacy of sin. Thank you that you are a God who can rewrite that. You are a God of new hope, of new creation. You can work in them starting today to leave a legacy of faith. I pray that they would turn to you fully, Lord, and trust you and walk with you. I pray for all of us that you would enlarge our faith and help us to trust you for big things. I pray that each and every day, each moment, we would understand that the choices we are making shape the legacies we will leave. I pray, Father, that you would be honored and glorified in us, all for the renown of your son, Jesus. May he be famous through our lives. In his name we pray, amen.